Last week I talked about seven things that I've learned about graduation seasons. Uh, I had less time today because of our graduates talking. So today I'm going to do six things. All right. So six things that I think are important to remember um, during, uh, or during times of transition and graduation about significance. Significance is the word of the day today. Here's the thing that I am assuming to be true. Y'all can tell me after if I'm wrong. But I'm assuming that most, if not all of us, have been steeped and raised in a culture that values success over significance. And if you have significance, it's fine. But it's just icing on the cake of success. Success is the cake. Success is the end game. And here's the problem with having success as the, the, the end, the ultimate goal. The problem with having success as the ultimate goal is whenever any of us say, oh, he's successful or, oh, she's been really successful, what do we really mean? We mean money. They made a lot of money. And if you're one of those holier-than-thou people, and that's what, not what I mean. Yes, you do. You, nobody believes you. Just stop. That's what we all mean when we say he's been really successful. He's done really well for himself. That is always about material stuff. And if the Bible is crystal clear about anything, it's about the fact that that is a trap. And the, the blind sort of pursuit of material stuff over and above everything else as the greatest end. And everything else is just a means to that successful end. It is evil's greatest trap. And so many of us fall into it. Jesus talked about that more than anything else. He said it very clearly in Mark chapter 8 when he said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul in the process? He knew how easy it is for that to happen. So instead of success, what I'm encouraging us to do is to aim at something else. I want us to think about aiming our lives, the trajectory and mission of our lives around something called significance. Significance is different than success. Significance, unlike success, isn't about material stuff. Significance is about meaning. Finding what your life means. Finding purpose. Finding importance. Living for something that actually matters. Here's the thing about success and significance. You can spend your whole life pursuing success. You can spend your whole life attaining it. And when you get to the top of the mountain, you can be void of significance. Your life can be without significance even if you have all the success in the world. But I've met very few people, I don't think I've ever met anybody actually, that has spent their life striving for significance and not also felt a sense of success. So you can have success without significance. It's very, very rare that you strive for significance and not have success. Now that doesn't mean you're going to get rich by striving for significance, as I'm going to talk to you about today. What it does mean is that when you strive for sig significance, your definition of success changes. And if you're looking for joy, if you're looking for purpose, if you're looking to step out of that hamster wheel you've been on, trying to prove yourself, trying to show others how worthy you are and how good you are and how much they should want to be your friend, how much they should look up to you, if you're sick of that competitive cycle we're in. I hope you'll listen to these six things we're going to talk about today. There's a story in the Bible that will illustrate these six things for me uh, today. It's in Acts chapter 2. It's the story of this guy we talk about some called Simon. Um, he's actually called Simon Peter. Simon's his name. Peter's his nickname. It just means rock. Jesus nicknamed him rock. 
And so Peter, or Rock, is a guy that we follow through the Gospels, and, and we see that, that he's kind of an up-and-down guy. He has really high highs and really low lows, and that's kind of what happens when a person's coming into their own, coming into their own mature self. Peter has high highs and low lows throughout the Gospels. And in Acts chapter 2, we finally get to see Peter become a man. We get to see this, this guy who acts like a boy in the Gospels grow into a man in Acts chapter 2. Just before this passage that we're going to study today, something dramatic has happened called Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday was last Sunday, and, and really it's a, uh, it's a way to commemorate the birthday of something called church. Before that day, there was nothing called church. And then suddenly there was church. And the way the church was born was not with brick and mortar or a capital campaign. The way church was born was when God poured out his Holy Spirit onto the people, and something happened to them that caused a stir. It got the attention of the observers who were on the outside looking in. So if you can picture this, there was 120 of the Christians, the only Christians really. There were 120 Christians at that time that were all gathered together in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit's poured out. And they start singing together and they start dancing together and they start loving each other a little bit more. And, and, and they actually look drunk. That's not my words. That's the first observation that someone on the outside looking in had about the church. The first thing any non-believer said about the church was, those people look drunk. That's the first observation. That should not be lost on us today, that, that the church to the first observers looked more like a rave than it did religion. And it's sad to me what's changed. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But I don't know if you've ever been in a place where the Holy Spirit was poured out where the Holy Spirit swept into a room. I think it happens here quite a bit, actually, when the music is soaring and our souls are just one and there's people that never will sing. People that months ago told me, I, I don't really sing in church. They're singing and they're crying and, you know, and the Holy Spirit moves in different ways in different places. You know, Pentecost in River Oaks looks like this. That's how you know the Spirit's powerful, man. The Spirit's moving in River Oaks and people are doing this. And, and it happens sometimes, you know. It happens to some of y'all. I saw some of you manly men singing and swaying a little bit earlier. And the Holy Spirit does weird things to people. And the people who saw the first Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit were freaked out by it. And then today's passage we're going to look at tells what happens immediately following that. When Peter demonstrates these six things I want you to know today about significance. First. The first thing is to embrace failure like a friend. To embrace failure like a friend. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. This is in your study guides. It's also in your Bibles. If you want to open your Bibles or your Bible apps, that's cool as well. Acts 2, 14. I'm going to take this story one verse at a time for now. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. The first thing I want you to know today, as you hear this passage, is that Peter, who stood up and spoke at the first church gathering, was a colossal failure. This guy was, he was unmitigated in his, he was a disaster. And it's not like 10 years had passed since his worst moment. 
You know the moment I'm talking about? Whenever Peter was standing with Jesus at Jesus' trial. This is just moments after Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, never, Lord. I will never deny you. I'm not that guy. And then just moments later, Jesus is on trial. And three people asked Peter, do you know? And then three times Peter said, I don't know him. And then he went out of the room weeping, crying like a child. A month and a half later, this happened. A month and a half after his worst moment, his biggest failure, this happens. He stands up and he speaks. How in the world does he go from being such a colossal failure, the day after he failed Jesus in that way, he actually turned in his badge, he quit being a disciple until Jesus reinstated him on the shoreline in the story we talked about at Easter. He went from being a quitter and a failure to this man who stands up and speaks. How did he get there? The first answer is obvious. The Holy Spirit was poured out in the room, and so he was emboldened by the Holy Spirit. But I also think Peter was prepared by his failure. Unless we forget that and, and sweep our failures under the rug and act like they never happened and just put our trophies on the, on, on, uh, over the fireplace on the hearth and, and we pack our failures away in boxes so nobody can see them. Don't fall for it. Be proud of your failures and the ways they've trained you and taught you. It was Peter's failure that taught him to look out for the next critical moment when his life was on the line to stand up and say, next time, this is going to be different. Sometimes we treat failure like an enemy when, in fact, sometimes your failure is the best thing that can happen to you. After he invented the electric light bulb, uh, Thomas Edison was interviewed about the process because he had, to that point, been known as a failure in his own right. He had failed over a thousand times at inventing the light bulb. And so when they asked him about his failure, he said, I've not failed a thousand times. I invented the light bulb in a thousand steps, which is a great way to think about your failure, y'all. Your worst moment is not your worst moment. Your worst moment is a new beginning towards your best. And so if you own your failure and, and humble yourself in that way, uh, you, you, can, you can learn from it. Uh, there, there's a really short clip I want to play you from uh, the author and podcaster, Seth Godin, about, about failure. Listen to this. My lesson was, My lesson was if I fail more than you do, I win. Because, because built into that lesson, built into is, that this lesson is this notion that, that you get to keep playing. You get to keep playing. If you get to keep playing... That means you get to keep failing, and sooner or later, you're going to make it succeed. The people who lose are either the ones who don't fail at all and get right. stuck, or the ones who fail so big they don't get to play again. Get drunk on purpose. Acts chapter 2, verse 15. I'm worried my kids are listening. Acts chapter 2, verse 15. All right. Peter's, uh, Peter continues his sermon. He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning, <laughs> which is great. It's a great response uh, from Peter. It's only 9 in the morning. How can we possibly be drunk? Look, if the church does not look like a party, it's not the church. If the church is not so set on fire by the love of God, and what the love of God and the cross and the empty tomb, what it really means for all of us. If we're not so swept up in the wonder and awe of it, of it all, of creation and the universe and our little place in it. And God gives us this ability to commune with him and with each other. If that doesn't set your heart on fire, then we are not the church, y'all. If people on the outside looking in, don't look at us and go, I'll have what they're having. 
Like we're missing the point because the first church was a party more than anything else. A desirable party to crave and look up to and want. What was it that they were drunk on? The Holy Spirit, obviously, again, the first answer. But what they had really found by way of the Holy Spirit was purpose. They had found their purpose that day. For a month and a half since Jesus' resurrection, they were wandering. They were lost. And do you know how easy it is to get into that season of life when you just coast? When you just cruise control it? When you don't really have a purpose? You're just kind of putting in your eight hours or nine or ten hours and getting through the traffic and getting through the day and, and then turning on Netflix and just falling asleep. Like that's the cruise control most of us find ourselves in a little too often. It's a purposeless life. But what happens when your eyes are open to the purpose you were really created for? When you really realize, some of you have never realized this, and some of you, this is going to be a very depressing statement, but, but I'm just going to be honest with you because I love you. If you feel like you're missing something, it's purpose that you're missing. A sense of significance, a sense of calling, what you're really here to do. That's what purpose is. It is your reason for being. These Christians found it, and when you find it, there's nothing better. There's no drink or drug that's any better than finding your purpose in this life. And that's what set them on fire. Number three, read more old stuff. All right, people? I'm going to be the old guy in the room for a second. Get off my lawn and read more old stuff, okay? Read more old stuff. Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 21, Peter's sermon continues. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. So, in his first sermon ever preached, which, by the way, I'm incredibly jealous and envious of Peter's first sermon. My first sermon did not go as well. As Peter's did, he had 3,000 converts by the end of it. I'm still playing catch-up to that. Ten, 15 years later, right, I'm still playing catch-up to, like, Peter's 3,000 converts. And it's the first sermon. Come on, Peter. But he did. And he started it not with a cute story or a poem or a joke. He started it by quoting this ancient prophet Joel. How did Peter quote the ancient prophet Joel? Peter was illiterate. Peter didn't read. You think he had a Bible in his hand reading from the ancient prophet Joel? No. But he was familiar enough with the things of old. He was familiar enough with where he came from that he was able to quote from memory. This prophet who prophesied six, seven, eight hundred years before. It's powerful stuff. You see... Peter knew that when he stood up to speak, he stood on the shoulders of ancient wisdom like Joel's. When he stood up to speak, he had something to say because he had tapped into something deeper than his own understanding. People, two-thirds of what we read today is from our social media feeds. That is not a good thing, y'all. Time hasn't had time yet to weed out the crap from our social media feeds. Like, like the shelf life tells you something. If something's new, that doesn't mean it's good necessarily. But if something's old and it's still around, that means it's got something to tell you. 
It's got something to show you about life. It's got some way for you to apply that to your life and your understanding. And so I'm encouraging you, encouraging, urging you as the old preacher in the room to put down Elite Daily, to put down Huffington Post, to put down social media and just dig deeper. Go back one generation to C.S. Lewis and see what Clive has to say to your soul. And then when you get done with C.S. Lewis, just go back a little further and see what John Wesley had to say and why his stuff still matters today. Why hasn't time weeded out John Wesley? Well, maybe it's because the truth of God is found in what he said. Why hasn't time weeded out Martin Luther or, or, or for that matter, St. Augustine, who wrote confessions, you know, 1,700 years ago, 1,600 years ago? I mean, my goodness, the stuff we're missing when we don't dig deep into our past, our, our, our history, is profound. And then, of course, I hope that all of that reading leads you back to the ancient wisdom of Scripture, which in its own right, its shelf life speaks for itself. And it has more to say to us than maybe what you've heard. And if you want to dig deeper, if you want to know what to say and how to stand in moments of uh, trial, you'll find it in the wisdom of old. Number four, brutal honesty. It's always better than polite heresy. Brutal honesty, always better than polite heresy. This is uh, from chapter 2, verse 22 and 23 of Peter's sermon. This is, remember, these guys are right in front of him. He's not preaching online like I I am today to these people. Like I could say anything to those people and they can't hurt me, right? But, uh, but, you know, I wouldn't say something really mean to you guys because y'all could could have it out with me. Peter's talking to people right in front of him. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him and as you yourselves know. He's saying, you saw Jesus do these things. You know, you know who he was, who he is. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. What's Peter doing here? He's going to lose his audience, man. Like, he's he's giving it to him. He's being really honest. This is a gutsy move. He's saying, you guys basically had a hand in taking out the son of God. That guy you turned into the Romans for crucifixion, he was the Messiah. He was the one guys like Joel were talking about. Centuries ago, you had a hand in the death of the son of God. He's just laying it out there, man, without holding back at all. And this is why this point for me, number four of the six, is by far the hardest because we are so delicate today. We are so sensitive I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to be offended. I don't want to offend anyone. Can we just have a pleasant conversation? You know, where you don't tell me what's wrong with me and I don't tell you what's wrong with you. And we just like each other. You know, it's easier that way if I just tell you whatever you're doing in your life, however you're spending your money, however you're eating, whoever you're sleeping with, whatever you're doing, it's cool. It's fine. I love you. It's good. As long as you say the same thing to me about what I'm doing and eating and everything. You know what I mean? Like, let's just be pleasant together. Listen, I'm not... I'm not telling you to go out and be the sin police. I'm not, I'm not telling you to go out and judge people that you don't even know. That's not our calling. That's not what Peter's doing. You better know, like Peter knew these guys personally. The Jewish community, very small communities, like a family in those days. Peter knew these guys by name, and they knew him. He might have been related to some of them. He cared about them. 
And so that's what gave him license to tell them exactly what they've done and how to make it right, to try to put the truth in front of them so that they'll see it and maybe make a change. That is, in Peter's position in that time, the only loving thing he could have done. Anything short of that, anything saying like, oh, well, those silly Romans, they took Jesus, didn't they? Isn't that unfortunate what happened to Jesus? Like anything short of actually saying, what have you done? You guys, this was the Messiah. Anything short of that would have been not love, but fear, even a kind of hate. When we withhold truth from someone that we care about. Guys, this was... This was gutsy, and I'm not sure I can honestly say that I would have the guts that, that Peter had when he put those men's sin before them. But I can't think of anything more loving that he could have done. And I can't think of anything worse or more toxic than polite heresy that says anything goes. You be you, and I'll be me. The more you follow Jesus, the more you'll see the difference between good and evil and right and wrong. God's truth will stand above more and more as you follow Jesus. And the more courageous you'll be to speak to that truth in a loving way to those you know and care about. That's where Peter got it. He got it from Jesus who spent his three years in ministry lovingly calling people out on the ways they're missing the boat. Number five. Instead of asking what would Jesus do, Ask, what did Jesus do? Can we all agree that the what would Jesus do phase is over in the Christian tradition? Can we just say we will never ask that question ever again? I'm going to say more about that in just a second. But let's look at what Peter said next in his sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. And then if you're in your Bible and not in the study guides, just look up. I'm going to skip ahead to 32 after 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I've always been a little leery of the what would Jesus do movement. It kind of hit its peak during my high school years. And I didn't appreciate it because whenever you're making out with your girlfriend and she's wearing a what would Jesus do bracelet. <laughs> kind of stands in your way a little bit, you know what I mean? I mean, it never stood in my way, but it could theoretically stand <laughs> in your way. You know what I'm saying? It's a collective groan. Yeah, pastors had girlfriends, okay? So just get over it. So why does, why did, what would Jesus do not work? Why did those bracelets not keep Christian kids from doing the same stuff that non-Christian kids do? Why? I'll tell you why. It's because asking what, what would Jesus do is to make Jesus into another religious moral code. Asking what would Jesus do is to say that all we're here to do is be good little boys because Jesus was a good little boy and you should be a good little boy too. And that kind of religious stuff never changed anybody. It never changed one soul. In fact, there's only one thing that I've ever seen in all my time in ministry change a person from the inside out. And it's not religion and it's not moral codes. It's not behavior modification. It's grace. The grace of God poured out for you and for me and for everybody 
who couldn't possibly deserve it when you understand the grace of God. Do you think Peter understood the grace of God after doing what he did on the night Jesus was on trial and being reinstated as a leader in the church again after making that colossal error? Do you think Peter understood the grace of God and how little he deserved it, but how much God poured it out on him? When you understand the grace of God, you stop this mentality of religion that says you better be good, just like Jesus is good, and you realize that grace means none of us are good, but he loves us anyway. And because he loves us anyway and sets us free from the sins of our past, we are free to do better now. We're free to respond to his grace in some better and more powerful, more meaningful ways. Peter stood up and spoke to tell the people what Jesus had already done not what he would do. And that's what happens when you live a life of significance with Jesus. Your life becomes all about what Jesus has already done for you and not just what would Jesus do today. What did Jesus do and what does it mean for us? When you realize that Jesus on the cross was the embodiment of the grace of God for you in spite of your failures and in spite of mine, nothing will change you quite like that. Number six and finally, Guys, all that really matters is people knowing God. All that really matters is people knowing God. In the business world, we talk about having lead measures and how what you really care about, that's what you're measuring. And so if you're measuring your income or your net worth or, or how good your business is doing at the bottom line, that's what you really care about. In the church world, we have to be careful what we're measuring because if we're measuring, you know, we're counting butts and seats and nothing beyond that, that just means we hope many, many people come to see our show. Look what a good show we can put on. That better not be a church's lead measure. Our lead measures are those, those second-degree engagements when people say, yes, I'll be baptized. Yes, I'll join a, a, a small group. Yes, I'll go serve at Church Under the Bridge. Yes, I'll follow Jesus. Like those are the lead measures. And so you have to ask yourself, what's the lead measure in your life? In Acts 2, 37 to 41, uh, Peter finishes his sermon this way. He says, uh, well, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the other, uh, said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. About 30 years after he said these words, Peter was put on trial himself, and he was found guilty. He was condemned to die on a cross. But he begged and pleaded with his captors to not kill him the same way that Jesus had died. He didn't think he was worthy to die the same death Jesus died, and so they hanged him on a cross, inverted, upside down. And that's how Peter died. I'll ask you a question as I close. Do you think Peter was a success? In worldly terms, would your friends, or would you say Peter died a successful man? 
He was penniless, broke, nobody there for him or with him, no net worth to speak of. And he was a convicted criminal on top of all of that. Did Peter die a success? Maybe not. But was Peter significant? Here we are, 2018, in the city of Houston, one of the most uh, affluent and fastest growing cities in the most powerful country on the face of the earth. 2,000 years after Peter walked the earth with the nickname Rock of all things, following this no-name rabbi in the middle of nowhere and as part of this, this province in the Roman Empire, he was a nothing, a nobody. Do you think he was significant? We're here talking about Peter today. As, a, as, as someone we should be following and, and emulating, was he a success? Maybe not. Was he significant? Absolutely. And would he say that his life bore the signs of success? Absolutely. Because he strove for significance in Jesus. And along the way, Jesus changed his definition of success. His lead measure became how many people know the love of God because of my witness? How many people know the love of God because of the witness of this illiterate fisherman called Rock? Billions. What will your lead measure be? When the day of your trial comes, what will you have to say for the way that you've lived? When your day comes to cross over from this life into the next, and it will, that day awaits us all, what will your lead measure be? near success, no one will care what you're holding on your last day, except for people who just want it for themselves. No one will care what you're holding. What they will care about is what you've lived for. And, and all that will matter is whether or not they have come to know the love of God through you. And not just your words, but your actions. Let that and nothing else be the lead measure of your life. Let that be the definition of success. Let that be the end that everything else in your life is pointing toward. Your success at work, at home, in relationships, everywhere else, it all is a means to a greater end of more people knowing more of the love of God through you. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for people that are on the cusp, on the precipice of some great change as, as we um, walk up the ladder of success and significance. God, I pray that you would keep our feet on the ground. You would uh, give us courage to stand up and speak when necessary. That you would give those who are on the, the brink of some breakthrough, God, um, courage to claim the purpose that you created us for. God, may we be about sharing your love with those around us, with those in our homes, those we work with. God, every day of our lives, and let that be the lead measure that dictates how we live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.